This is Weekly Signals Interviews, broadcast every Tuesday morning from 8 to 9 on KUCI 88.9 FM, Irvine, California. I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Kaspar. For every dollar owned by the average white family in the United States, the average family of color has less than a dime. In The Color of Wealth, the story behind the U.S. racial wealth divide, a book written by five leading economic experts, Barbara Robles shows how for centuries people of color have been barred by laws and by discrimination from participating in government wealth-building programs that benefit white Americans. Robles taught Latino public policy at the LBJ School of Public Affairs at the University of Texas at Austin from 1998 to 2005 and now teaches community economics at Arizona State University. Barbara Robles, welcome to Weekly Signals. Thank you for having me. Oh, thanks for being here. Uh, where are you today? Is this? Are we reaching you in... Uh, Phoenix. Phoenix? Oh, very good. What's, what's it like there? Are we... Uh, well, it hasn't gotten up to 104 yet. <laughs> Is that what it's been there? Well, yesterday it was pretty high. It broke wow. 100. Yeah. Wow. Well, well good <laughs> luck with that. Yeah. <laughs> My goodness. Yeah. Well, let's see. Well, let's just start off with the, the, uh, the softball question. Why, why is there such a, a, a large disparity between uh, the opportunities for whites and Latinos in, in wealth? Well, a lot of it has to do with our, our, our history, clearly. And one of the things that we wanted to do in this book is that we wanted to focus on the kind of policies that government has enacted and how government actions have helped certain communities and how government inaction has hindered certain communities with respect to accumulating wealth. And right off the bat, I want to explain that wealth is very different from income. We've focused a lot on... on um, being able to close the gap uh, in earnings and labor market discrimination. I think we've done a really successful job in many ways um, in initiating that, along with government actions. But wealth is much broader than just earnings and income. It's the ability to buy a house. It's the ability to uh, pass on your accumulated wealth to your offspring. It's um, the ability to leverage all of the assets that you've accumulated in order to get a better education for your children for the future. So wealth, when we talk about wealth, we're talking about a variety of different uh, assets. We're talking about retirement portfolios and home ownership and uh, educational opportunities, clearly human capital. Mm -hmm. So wealth is, is much broader. So when we look at the broader um, aspects, we recognize that government policies um, have been an important contributor. A really good example of that would be the Homestead Act in the mid-19th century. Um, unfortunately, African Americans and Native Americans, as well as certain populations of, of Mexican Americans that were here at that time in the Southwest, weren't participants in that particular government policy. And when you stop and think about it, that's about land, and it's about um, being able to pass that land on to your children. So clearly the Homestead Act was a really important boost up for particular segments of society. If we look a little closer in time to um, the New Deal and the enactment of Social Security, Social Security left out um, farm workers and domestics 
when it was enacted in terms of who it would cover in terms of the working um, people of America. And unfortunately at that time, and, and unfortunately still today, the main um, communities that contribute to both domestics and, and farm working are communities of color. So only recently have we reversed um, the coverage of Social Security for those particular occupations. So when you think about the long haul, it means that if you weren't covered with, by Social Security, communities of color, families of color that weren't covered had to have a double decision in terms of wealth. They had to take care of their elderly as well as educate their children. Mm-hmm. So it, it places a burden on who can get ahead and who who can't get ahead. Um, the GI Bill is another good example. Unfortunately, the GI Bill was a tremendous boost up for the working class in the U.S., um, the returning veterans, but we still had um, educational segregation at the time the GI Bill went into effect. So returning African-American veterans um, weren't able to take to a large part, um, uh, part in that particular wealth expansion program. Is is as you were describing earlier, the the we're doing a better job now of with uh, p- the hiring of people, earnings, and income than we have in the past. Is that is that going to over time begin to um, achieve some of the things that you were talking about? Being able to buy a home, uh, establish a retirement, uh, educational opportunities is is there is there a cumulative effect over time, or are we seeing government policies undermining those those gains? Actually, government policies, um, in essence, undermine, especially um, now as we move into the 21st century. Right, right. If, if we have both of the policies, the close and the income gap, as well as these wealth-expanding policies, and here I'm specifically talking about HUD, Housing and Urban Development, mm-hmm. and, and the push to get home ownership for communities of color, along with this, this closing income gap, would, would really be helpful. But that's not exactly what we're saying. Unfortunately, the gains in minority home ownership has been at the expense of subprime lending. And so that means you're paying a larger cost to acquire a home than you ordinarily would if you were um, not a family of color. Mm. And it's, it's, you know, we don't talk about it in terms of redlining as much as we used to, Mm -hmm. but it's still an inherent part of our lending system and our borrowing system. Even though we've democratized credit in a lot of ways, we've democratized it with a really high-end cost for communities of color. Mm-hmm. So, and w- let me clarify what I was just saying. Uh, when I say government policies, I, I, I was t- referring to current policies because it does seem that there's been some um, backtracking on these oppor- these opportunities. that the, w- the New Deal is essentially dead. We're not right. saying that. The Homestead Act, I don't know if that's still being employed. I couldn't tell you the effect no. it has. The GI Bill is pretty much dead. So what? Yeah, okay, but, so. but that's, that's a tremendous head start, at least, with, yeah. <laughs> especially with the Homestead Act. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. So I guess what I'm saying is all of these, what you were describing as all these opportunities to kind of close the gap are being sort of systematically closed down, um, or at least they're, they're, being, they're dying on the vine if they're not being even more dramatically even taken off uh, the books, right? Is that I mean? it's, it's pretty much government inaction in the okay. sense that, you know, we, once we began to see the dismantling of a lot of these policies that were really meant to close the wealth gap, um, 
we begin to see the increase in, in the wealth divide. And, and it's, here's the problem that you've really got. It's a, closing, it's a closing down of the broadening of opportunities. Mm-hmm. At the low end, there's this um, reversals and neglect. And at the high end, there's even more opportunities. A really good example of that is um, the capital gains tax cut. Mm-hmm. So what it's doing is it's amplifying all of the upper-end affluent opportunities while closing down the lower-end opportunities in terms of government policy. Right. And so that's just accelerating the wealth divide right. um, and the wealth gap. So, so, yes, it's a combination of the two things. We're speaking with Barbara Robles, and she is one of the authors of a book called The Color of Wealth, the story behind the U.S. racial wealth divide as it grows and grows, doesn't it? Yes, it doesn't seem, it, it seems that we, if we take a very proactive um, kind of broadening approach to policies, we could actually stem the tide. But unfortunately, it, it appears that, that we've become um, less interested in democratizing and in creating opportunities and more interested in um, looking towards uh, a kind of winner-take-all society. Mm-hmm. And, and that's, I think, a, a really bad precedent because we've got future generations to think about and the narrowing of, of who's allowed opportunities and who's not doesn't bode well for the future. Mm-hmm. Now, now, how are those opportunities being narrowed again? Do you think it's, uh, you know, are, are we talking a matter of race or are we talking more of a matter of class about who has the the funds to be able to take out the loans or do you do you think there is a racial aspect here yeah, yeah. there's there's definitely a racial component um, I'd love to be able to say there isn't but our history indicates um, with with so so many um, gains that we've had due to civil rights and and continuation of, of civil rights policies but we've seen the reversals of affirmative action and in fact that's such a hot button issue when you talk about it in terms of educational opportunity and access we've seen um, a continuing of of why it is that for um, African-American um, borrowers and for Hispanic borrowers, there's a higher probability of being denied or of ending up in the subprime market now, than for white borrowers. Now, now why is this? I mean, is wait, it, can I just ask real yeah. quick, just so everybody understands, the subprime market, do you mean they're borrowing money at a higher rate? Is that what you yes. mean? Yes. Okay. Uh, it, it costs more to borrow. In other words, there's what you call the prime market, which is what they consider to be your best customer rate. Right. And then there's the subprime market, which means that there's something wrong with how um, our credit uh, criteria is used. For example, if you don't have any credit at all, Mm -hmm. in other words, you have no history of having had credit, so you're a blank slate, Mm -hmm. you're still um, pretty much tracked into the subprime market simply because there's no history to evaluate. So it's a catch-22 story. If you don't have any credit history, you're in the subprime market. In order to get a credit history, you have to get credit. So it's, it's, a, it's a hard situation, I think, for, um, for particular communities that have been blocked out of, of credit markets. And then do you, for all, I, I just happen to have some, a little bit of knowledge that I know that in some uh, Latino communities, there are pr- very predatory lending, lending yes. 
practices so because these people don't have a credit history and they essentially lure them into these situations which where you get into the a real credit problem credit right problems, yeah. no no the low income communities that are that are the question earlier was, is it class or is it yeah, race? Sure. It's, a com- it's actually a combination of both. And, and what you have is um, in communities of color, low-income, high-density communities of color, you, you can drive through them and you can see pawn outlet shops mm. and check-cashing outlets and um, remittance um, mm. little kiosks. And what you don't see are a lot of the mainstream financial institutions. You don't see credit union uh, branches. You don't see um, typical, you know, bank branches. And the unfortunate part of that is that if you don't have alternatives, if all you've got are the predatory lenders, that's what's going to be used. But getting back to the racial, I mean, I guess this, <laughs> we've had, uh, Nathan and I have had this discussion a number of times. Really, is is it a matter of class or is it, or, but you're saying it's a combination. I know what you're saying, I believe. That's right. what you're saying, is it's a combination of the two. But it is impossible to ignore the racial element here, given... It, it is impossible to ignore. And I use, in many ways, I use West Virginia, um, actually, as, as the example um, of, of what can be done. Mm-hmm. If every state that has high-density, um, you know, kind of low-income communities had a Senator Byrd... <laughs> Uh, mm-hmm. In their, in in you know, as an advocate, you would see uh, an escalation of or a, mini- a mitigation of the poverty indicators, and you would see change. And that's exactly what we've seen in the Appalachia area. That's not to minimize that there's still pockets in Appalachia that mm-hmm. continue to need you know government policies and um, more educational access and opportunities, but. West Virginia has done a tremendous job in the past 15 years of truly taking those economic indicators that were dismal and bringing them up to speed. And, and what we've seen is that what's taken Appalachia's place with respect to poverty indicators has been the Deep South, the Native American reservations, and um, the southwest border. I want to remind our listeners that we're speaking with Barbara Robles, and she is one of the authors of The Color of Wealth. And... Um, well, oh, let me ask you, you had, uh, if you had a chance to uh, digest uh, President Bush's speech on, uh, on immigration. Right. I, I was able to, and I have been keeping, clearly for a variety of different reasons, yeah. um, keeping track of the debate. Um, one of the things I do want to mention is that um, this is not a, a, a 21st century phenomenon. This has been with us mm-hmm. and with the Latino community historically. There have always been first-generation uh, Latino um, within our communities in the U.S. There has been a continuation, and partly it's been government policies on immigration, and partly it's been a variety of different reasons with respect to um, uh, Latin America's economic well-being. I, my own take on what is happening right now with the National Guard is that we've got we've got some major issues with respect to um, Iraq and Afghanistan and the deployment of the National Guard there. Mm-hmm. And clearly, there are other pockets in the world that the National Guard is deployed at as well. Mm-hmm. To actually send six thousand uh, National Guard members to Mexico, who is a neighbor. Um, is not the kind of signal that we want to send globally. 
And, and I think that right now border tensions um, globally are looking to the U.S. Um, as a, a leader to see how we navigate um, these kind of foreign policy um, issues that clearly have an impact on our domestic policy issues. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm, I'm very leery of taking this particular type of action and the kind of reverberating message it's going to have worldwide. I I sense almost the strain in your voice here trying to come to grips with with all this. It it does seem that, I mean, this is something that we need to deal with as a country. We need to have a, a policy that's both humane and just and all the rest of it that makes sense. Um, and, and yet we have, and, and I, 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 I hadn't heard it quite put that way, but I, I, I can hear in, in that argument that we're essentially militarizing all of our problems now. Any, almost all, all of, so many of our issues, either it, it, we're militarizing police, we're militarizing our borders, we're militarizing our foreign policy, and our diplomacy is now militarized. It, is really, it really is a, a, a terrible signal that we're sending, isn't it? I, I, I can't begin to emphasize that um, in, in the most profound uh, language that I possibly can, only because I've worked um, very closely with colleagues, other academics, who are very concerned about this public policy issue in the European common market. And one of the things that they have come to academics in the U.S. for is guidance on public policy with with respect to immigration, that I, I think that the U.S. And, and the typical person, you know, and here I'm talking just the normal, average, you know, working person who goes, you know, who lives either you know, in the suburbs or in the city and and kind of doesn't really recognize how we're viewed uh, mm-hmm. abroad, right. doesn't understand how how much... Um, how profound. How, how profound and how admired in many ways the U.S. has been in terms of being the leader in the rest of the world with how it treats immigrant populations. Because we're a country based on immigration, the world looks to us for resolving exactly these kind of issues. And the kind of um, resolutions that we take now, both legislatively and, you know, in terms of our domestic policy and how that impacts foreign policy is going to be um, viewed very carefully in the rest of the world and especially in the European common market. Um, I've been working with a colleague in Spain um, on, on policy and, and what kind of policy initiatives Spain can, can um actually take. And the questions are is that, well, it's worked so well in the U.S., whereas we only focus on the problems. We don't focus on, on how, you know, how amazingly positive our incorporation of immigrant populations and um, the economic prosperity the immigrant populations have historically brought us. And that's what's viewed in the rest of the world. And I think we need to be very careful about the kind of message that we end up uh, sending. Well, just back to the subject of the disparity of wealth here. Uh, do you see any positive signs out there for the future? Is there something that you're, uh, is, are there programs that you're looking at that really point the way to, to getting out of our dilemma right now? Actually, I do. I think there's a lot of positive models. Um, and, and I think they're almost like well-kept secrets because they're very much at the local level. It's, it's um, community development, 
with an eye to the seventh generation. It's about sustainability and stewardship. And one of the things that I've been working with are local community-based organizations that um, engage and, and support and provide a forum for more civic engagement at the local level. Mm-hmm. And so in a sense, it's almost like you know, thinking globally but acting locally. Mm-hmm. And, and these are, I think, the gems that we need to be talking about and we need to be working with as academics, universities, working with communities to begin to replicate these kind of um, models and these kind of programs because they're organizations that are, are really the essence of social entrepreneurship. It's almost like a, a kind of humane community development where everybody is engaged, and, it, and they're comprehensive initiatives. They're not just looking at um, how can we get um, people only concerned with, you know, making it through to the next day. These, these are not only making it through to the next day, but they're thinking how can we get people into affordable housing, mm-hmm. and how can we make sure that the youth in, in, in communities that are struggling have enrichment programs and, and can recognize the opportunities um, in educational uh, access and educational attainment. So they're very comprehensive, and, and I find that um, truly the, the kind of the positive note and, and the models that, and these are, these are homegrown, so they're, they're sustainable, they're growing up um, in different pockets, and, and they're very locally anchored, and so that means that there's, they're not going to go away. They're in the community. They're yeah. going to stay there, and, and I find that very promising. Uh, Barbara Robles, what, I think you, are you describing non-government initiatives, right? I'm, I'm are you describing, right, no, I'm describing non-profits, yeah. um, and these are nonprofits that have a, a very different view, I think, than, than former nonprofits in terms of creating a series of coalitions and partnerships, both with the for-profit and mm-hmm. the private sector as well as the public sector, mm-hmm. and along with philanthropy as well. Um, the third sector, I think, is, is uh, coming into its own, in a sense. Mm-hmm. Let me, let me uh, get th- make sure I have this statistic correct, or the, the idea here, is that the United States is now one of the leading or the leading country in the world in terms of the disparity between our richest and our poorest. It's one of the leading countries. Okay, yes. it's not the. I, I'm. I've been hearing that. You know, <laughs> as it's getting getting to the point where we we are among industrial countries, the the greatest disparity. But it's close enough. And it, the point is, is that um, we well, obviously we need to uh, try and bring that back into some kind of a corrective mode. But um, is there? And that's and that's what the book is about. It's right. about saying, okay. you know, we here's the history of of what we know. And here are the programs that have worked in ways that, that even exceeded, you know, the anticipation of them having worked. Mm-hmm. Things like the GI Bill, right. um, things like Social Security, um, things, things that we know um, are not hip to talk about now. They're not, they're not like, um, truly seen in the kind of way that, that, they, that they were in their heyday. But there are lessons learned from that. And if we know that they work then, we know that we can have the imagination and the innovation to craft programs that would work today and in today's, you know, reality. And mm-hmm. here I'm talking about our economic reality and our, our global reality. All right. Well, we're going to have to uh, wrap this up. Um, I want to just say one quick thing, and that is 
we need to be thinking about a new New Deal. And I, I, I've, I've just sort of been promoting that idea because I do think we're coming up to a point where the economy is going to be in some real trouble, and we're going to need to be thinking uh, about that kind of an idea again. And uh, But I want to thank you very, very much, uh, Barbara Robles, uh, the, uh, one of the authors of The Color of Wealth, the story behind the U.S. racial wealth divide. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. No, it was you're a pleasure. Right. Take Bye-bye. care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. To learn more about Weekly Signals interviews, including upcoming guests, or to download the podcast, visit our website at weeklysignals.com. And be sure to visit nathancallahan.com for daily readings and feature articles. Until next week, I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Caspar. And this is Weekly Signals.